But dear congregation, dear friends, I ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Through our week-by-week ministry, going through this epistle in an expository manner, going verse-by-verse through this epistle, we arrive now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the verse 23. I'm going to read just a few verses as we consider this last section here this evening with regards to the ordinance of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. The Apostle Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me, After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Amen. Well, may the Lord help us as we continue now in this chapter and continuing to go through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. Let us set before us just the the context. I trust we should know it very well by now. As we come to this section, we've seen many things in this epistle. It's important for us to understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. He's not going to teach everything about the Lord's Supper, about the Lord's table, about the ordinance of the table. There is much more. There are many other passages of Scripture. But let's just understand why he is writing these things. Things aren't right here at Corinth. Indeed, it seems that much of the epistle to the Corinthians is an indictment to the way that they've been behaving, the way that they've been carrying out things. They are believers, they are Christians, but things have gone awry, haven't they? Remember that the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, he was there for a space of 18 months. He ministered there. It was very tough going. There was a lot of opposition at Corinth. But the Lord said to him, One night, remain here, for I have many people in this place. And the Lord began to save souls at that time. Paul saw, even as he tells the Corinthians here, that he was a very feeble instrument. He says he came with much weakness. He came with trembling. The power not rested in Paul, but it was of the Holy Spirit that men and women were converted and added to the church. He was there for some 18 months, and then, of course, the Lord provided workers. There was Apollos, and there were others that remained there for a while. The time now is somewhere around AD 56. Paul, if you just turn to chapter 16, look at verse uh, 24, and then if you look at the postscript there, it says, 1 Corinthians 16, 24, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. 
And then the postscript we read, the first epistle to the Corinthians was written from Philippi. And here are the couriers of this epistle, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaeus and Timotheus or Timothy. And now he is sending Timothy with this epistle and these other workers. And uh, well, after a time that Paul was there, he left, the church was established, and men began to preach. There was a leadership in place. As I said, Apollos ministered the word of God, a very mighty man in the scriptures, very eloquent, a very able communicator. But then there was this factious spirit in the church, and it was just so terrible. It was destructive. If you look there at chapter 16, verse 12, Apollos is with the Apostle Paul. He says here in verse 12, as touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have a convenient time. Paul is telling them that it is not desirous for Apollos to be with them. This been some problems. There have been reports from Chloe's household and from other quarters that there is this factious spirit. Men were aligning themselves with various preachers. Some of them, no doubt, eloquent, like Apollos, but they had taken their eye off being spiritual. They were concentrating so much on the ability of these men rather than obeying God. So he sends Timothy, look at verse 10 of chapter 16. Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. And of course we're told in the postscript here that Timotheus, Timothy, will take this. Now, the Apostle Paul has been giving instruction on many things in this epistle. Let's just quickly go over them. First of all, as I said, there was an awful party spirit in the church. And he had to remind them, is Christ divided? The church should not be divided. You shouldn't be taking pride in these many men. You should be concentrating upon the word of God preached. And above all, it's not about the men, is it? It's about the power of the Holy Spirit who takes the word of God and who quickens souls and who adds souls to the church. The power is not in the preacher. The power is in the word, but the word attended by the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined to know anything, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then Paul is just dealing with this. It's not about the men. It's not about the preachers. I came as a very weak and feeble man, but it was the Holy Spirit that attended the ministry and established the work. 
It's the Spirit of God that quickens, isn't it? It is that necessary, the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. The power is not in the preacher. Yes, the preacher must be clear. He must preach with alacrity. He must be sound in his doctrine. He must be clear. He must be coherent in what he says. All those things are necessary. If a man can't communicate truth, he shouldn't be preaching. But it even doesn't rest in the man, does it? Power is in God. The Lord Jesus said it, didn't he, in John 6, 63. He said, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The Holy Spirit quickens. This steals a death blow with Armenian teaching. If we believe it all depends on men, why, why pray? If it all depends on men, why pray then? It's a good question to ask. Well, we pray because God might have mercy and that he might send his Holy Spirit. What did the Lord Jesus say? When there were men who grumbled at his preaching, there in John 6, and he said, unless a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he can have no part and he cannot enter the kingdom, can know nothing of God's mercy and grace. He said, murmur not among yourselves, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. The man must be drawn of the Spirit. Well, there were these ungodly factions, and it was breeding worldliness in the church, man's ability. Men were looking to men, weren't they? But then there was also in the church this unbelievable, shocking failure for the church to deal with the most heinous and diabolical sin. A man had taken another well, his father's wife, it wasn't just a, another man, but it was his father's wife. And the church, shockingly, didn't deal with this sin. Unbelievable. The man had shamelessly taken his father's wife. And, by the way, that is continued on in the next epistle, Second Corinthians. They finally deal with the matter. The man is repentant, it seems. He has a godly sorrow. Well, at this point, the church allowed this member, sadly, to sit even at the Lord's table, as we'll be dealing with this subject tonight. This is how bad it was. It says there in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he says, Deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jesus, he says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? He says, purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. And then he adds this, for even Christ our Passover sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. There's only one feast. It's that of the Lord's table. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So they were secondly allowing this to go undealt with, that whole church was guilty, not only this man, but the whole church was guilty of this sin. And therefore, when they came together, the whole table was defiled, and the Lord was not pleased. And then thirdly, there was the 
case where a number of the members were shamelessly taking one another as church members to the law courts. And Paul has to say, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law? But my friends, we sadly hear of this on occasion, don't we? It should never be named. He says, you should judge among yourselves. He says in the verse 7 of that chapter, therefore you are utterly at fault because you go to law with one another. Rather be defrauded, he says. This is wrong. Drag that blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ amongst ungodly people who know not the Lord. This is how the body of Christ is to behave. Rather be defrauded than your Savior's name be dragged out into the law courts and all the dirty laundry, as it were, be brought before unbelievers. This is so wrong. And then, fourthly, do you remember from chapter 6 and then all the way into chapter 10, what he dealt with was our Christian walk, how we are not our own. We were bought at a price. What price was that? Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It was divine blood. It was the blood of God, the Son. It was literally God's blood. God was manifest in the flesh. You're not your own, he said. You're bought at a price. And therefore, whether we eat, we drink, our bodies are our own, we are to glorify God in our bodies. There were questions also, were they not about, should I marry, should I not? Is it right? He dealt with that in chapter 7. And he said, whether it's singleness or whether it's marriage, both are for the Lord. You use your singleness for the Lord, you use your marriage for the Lord. And husbands, your body is no longer your own, it belongs to the wife. Same with your wife, it belongs to the husband. And if you're single, your singleness is to be used for the Lord, not for the pleasures of this world. Christian singles ought to use the more time they have for the greater the glory of God and for greater service. So whether we're single or married, we are the Lord's and we are to use everything for his sake. And then he spoke with regarding to food. Remember in chapter 8, you have a brother who's a weak brother and he sees you eating food offered to an idol well, he, he's been speaking about Christian liberty. It's the whole thing, isn't it? The, the fact that we are not our own, we are free, we're free from the condemning power of the law, but we're not our own to serve ourselves. And he tells us all things are lawful for you, but not everything is expedient. You can eat what you like, but you can't eat when you like and what you like when you like, if that makes sense. There are times that it's not legitimate to eat certain things that might cause a brother to sin, might cause him to be offended because he does not have the knowledge that you have. This is what he's been saying. Christians, you're not your own. Yes, you can do all things, but you have to think you are Christ's servant. 
You are set free to serve him, not to serve your lusts. Don't use your Christian liberty, as he has to say to the Galatians, as an occasion to the flesh. Don't live your life to please yourself, but to please Christ and to serve the body of Christ and to honor Christ in all things. And then remember in even chapter 9, Paul spoke about how the fact that he had this right as a minister to take and to be supported by the churches, but he, he didn't abuse that right. He didn't stand on it. Why? Because he knew that even at this church at Corinth, there were some that had wrong views of him. Some esteemed him to be a taker, a sponge. Call it what you like, a user. And there are people like that, but that was not Paul. What did he say to them? Do we not have a right to take a, a wife even? Yes, we do, but I didn't take it, lest I cause you to stumble. In fact, in 2 Corinthians eleven eight, he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. He said, I robbed other churches so that I could, didn't cause you to stumble, so that you didn't have a wrong view of me. That's a good spirit, isn't it? That's the kind of spirit we all ought to have. The Apostle Paul's thought himself and understood that he was under Christ's authority. Let me say, those of you who aren't Christians, you must understand to be a Christian is a serious thing. It's not a half-hearted thing. It's not something you play at. But it's a whole life. Paul says, he says, when Christ who is our life shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. Unless he really becomes your life, you have to ask, do you have life? Do you really have life? Life is in the sun. And it's a new person. Of course, Paul is a wonderful example. I'm sure he puts many of us to shame. But it's not the perfection of these things, but it's the presence of these things. Are they in the life? It's like the Beatitudes. You know, you have eight of them, don't you, in Matthew chapter 5. It's not the perfection of those Beatitudes, but it's the very presence of them. Those will go on to increasing strength in the believer as he grows in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And what the Christian finds is that this kind of life is the best life. It's not a ball and chain around us but it's the blessing of God. To be a true servant of Christ is a wonderful thing. And then he touched on, didn't he, about headship. That's not a ball and chain, by the way. To be a Christian wife is not a ball and chain. He then spoke about every man in chapter 11. Christ being his head. And then wives... Your husband is your head. It's not as if you're not without Christ. But you're under the immediate authority of your husband in the Lord. But that means if your husband asks you to sin, you don't sin. You must obey God rather than man in that case. Now things concerning what we call the adiophora, things indifferent to the law. If your husband asks you to do this, you must obey. You must reverence him. 
But where it concerns abrogating the law or violating the law of God, you must never do that. And that applies to all of us as Christians. We must never violate the law of God. We must never violate even conscience. But conscience must always be informed by the word of Almighty God. He touched on this very fact in chapter 11 of this need of the symbol of the head covering. We thought about how he said here, it's a shame for a man to cover his head in service, in prayer, any time when the church gathers together. Why? Because Christ is his head. But it's a shame for a woman to be uncovered because she then dishonors her husband. And even the angels, as we thought, can be offended because we, we ignore God's word. This is a great peril. And he even says, ask yourself, is it comely for a woman to pray, to prophesy, to praise? We saw that word in Proverbs 31, prophesy can mean to praise. You think of the praise of the godly woman there in Proverbs 31. He says, ask yourselves, is it right? Is it appropriate that women are that way? Of course, the answer is no. And then he touched on the subject, as he did earlier in chapter 10, about, indeed, the two ordinances. Chapter 10, verse 1, he spoke originally, didn't he, about how even those in the Old Testament were baptized unto Moses. It was a, it was a, a as they went down into the water, they had to obey Moses. And then he used the illustration of drinking from that spiritual rock, he said, and they all drank from that spiritual rock, which is Christ. But they didn't discern things. They didn't take it in. What they were experiencing, God's power. God's power to divide the sea. When we think of our baptism, what is it picture? Romans 6 Paul speaks of being buried with him in baptism, being raised in newness of life. When we see somebody being baptized, we see them going in the water, coming out. What's that saying to us? God, by his power, has made a new creature. That person, it's a new person now. He's raised in newness of life. And Christ when he underwent his baptism of blood on the cross, he died in the place of his people, suffered for them. And now we are raised with him in the heavenlies, Paul says. Why? Because he is our federal head. When Christ was going into the water in the Jordan, he wasn't being baptized in the sense that he was a sinner. But he would be the representative of all of his people, going down for Abraham's sins, going down for my sins, for your sins if you're a Christian. And then being raised, as it were, even on the third day. The Jordan pictured death. 
And he suffered that great baptism. The cross of Calvary, didn't he? And on the third day he rose, triumphant over the grave. And because he lives, he lives in our hearts now. It's wonderful proof, isn't it? Not just the empty tomb, but the fact that he has come to indwell our souls. That he quickened us from the dead, from the spiritually dead. And now we are raised and we have faith union in Christ. We are new creatures, but that means we have a new life. And the old is past, and we must put it away, and we must put on the new man, which is after Christ Jesus. Well, they experienced that parting of the sea. They drank from that spiritual rock. But with many of them, we're told the Lord was not pleased. And we're told... Those things, and many of them perished in the wilderness, didn't they? But we're told these things are given for our admonition upon which the ends of the world are come. We're in the last days, we thought. And the world has got worse. Far more sin around us, isn't there? So many things, and we're told that even Satan himself, because we, he knows we're told in Revelation 12 that his time is short, that he has great wrath, and he is particularly, we're told, wrathful. We're told there in Revelation 12 toward those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Those are the ones he's really angry at. Because as you keep God's commandments, you reflect, you reflect your God. God's commandments reflect his character. Now, we come here this evening to the admonition. Having considered this, we learned last week how as they came to the table, he's now giving instruction concerning the table. How many were coming to the table, we saw it last week, in such a terrible manner, having no concern for one another. How in fact he said, do you, you despise the church? Verse 22, what have you not houses to eat in and drink in? Or despise ye the church? Again, that word despise means do you think little of? Do you think so little of the church? Some were coming drunk, some hungry, and they were coming just to eat the, the bread. And because they were so hungry, all they could think about is the bread to eat, to fill the belly. But the spirit was being neglected. They weren't discerning what Christ had done for them. And therefore they were coming in a completely unworthy manner. Should never have been. Could you imagine people drunk at the Lord's table? Could you imagine coming to church? Drunk? She'd never, ever be heard. You're taking in, my friend, I hope there's nobody here ever guilty of this. You're taking in life and death matters. You're taking in eternal matters. How can you be drunk? 
How can you be inebriated? How can you not be thinking right? Can you believe it? Were people doing that? Not only despising Christ, thinking little of him, little of what he did, but thinking so little of other people and not concerned that they might cause somebody else to stumble. May it never be named. This is an awful thing. Terrible thing. Now Paul has to admonish them very strongly because notice verse 23. As he says these things, he's just got off saying, do you despise the church? Have you not got homes to eat in? Have you not got places to do these things in? And then he says in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. I've already given it to you. I've already given you teaching on this. You should know better. I received it directly from the Lord. Yet they let it lapse. Oh, my friends, it's a solemn reminder that we could even be taught by the Apostle Paul face to face that we can have an Apostle, that we could even have Christ before us and we forget such things. It's solemn, isn't it? Their eye came away from obedience and they were more attracted to these preachers than the truth. This is serious, isn't it? This, my friends, is a very solemn reminder that we can receive the clearest teaching, even from an apostle, and utterly fail to do what God has said. We realized that blessed is the man that heareth the word of God and keepeth it. No use just learning. Some people pride themselves on knowledge. I'd rather know, let me say this, half of what I know and be able to at least practice of half what I do than a fraction of what I do. Hearing is not the same as obedience. That's really the first thing we could say when we come to this. And disobedience, as we will see here, means God's severe judgment and chastening. Look at verse 29. This is why he says in verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now notice, for, because, here's the reason, this cause many are weak and are sickly among you, and many sleep. He says, you know what? Some of you, you want to know why you've got poor health? Why you're suffering? Why you're weak? Why you're spiritually weak? Because you're doing this. Because you're dishonoring the Lord. Because you're despising the church. Because you have so little thought for the things of the Lord. God is not mocked. And God has to chasten sometimes very severely. Think there in Leviticus 10. How the Lord took Aaron's two sons. Nadib and Abayu. The sons of Aaron. They brought this strange fire before the Lord, and it says there, which he commanded not, and there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. Those two sons died instantly because they had no regard for the Lord. He said, well, what's the big deal? They took fire from another place, 
and they brought it. Well, that was not sanctioned by the Lord. And the Lord takes everything seriously. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. They made out as if they gave more money than they did. The Lord struck them both dead. And great fear came over the church. And there are many suffering here because of their disregard and disrespect for Christ. And they're despising the church. Now this evening we want to get to just a few things in the remaining time that we have with regards to the correct administration of the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. We call it the ordinance of the Lord's Table. Again, let me just say we do not use this word sacrament. And I know that some of the confessions use it, but the confessions are not Scripture. While the confessions are very good, the 1689 and the Westminster Confession, we do not use the word sacrament. That Latin word sacrament, sacramento, in the Latin, is actually not from the Greek in the correct sense. The word sacramento means something mysterious. Again, there's nothing mysterious taking place when we go in the water. There's nothing mysterious taking place when we break the bread and take the cup. The Lord Jesus was holding bread while he was holding with his hands. And he said, this is my body. Yeah, but it was his body that was breaking the bread. It's ludicrous to think that they were one and the same thing. And where does it end up? In your digestive system? And I need to say any more. It becomes offensive if we start thinking any further than that. Let us not succumb to false teaching. These are symbols. Now, the correct administration. First of all, we want to think here of this administration. For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. Now, first of all, we have to remember that it was the Apostle Paul that was in Arabia for a space of three years. Galatians 1.15, it says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately, the Apostle Paul says, I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So the Apostle Paul went to Arabia, and that was the place where the Lord brought him these revelations and spoke to him directly. And what Paul received is not incongruent with Matthew 26 or Luke, but is all the same. Revelation. This is what and how the Lord's table is to be instituted. He took the bread and broke it. Now the question is asked, why was the bread broken when the Lord Jesus Christ's body was not broken? Now we know that from Scripture. Some people ask this. Well, we're told in John 19, it says there, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, 
John 19.33, they break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith is true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So his body wasn't broken. So why this breaking of the bread? Well, it's for the dispersion, so that each one may partake. And we partake by faith. Think of what the Lord Jesus said when there were many murmuring, when he said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood and so on. There in John 6, just turn there. If you eat his flesh, of course, that requires breaking, doesn't it? Now what the Lord Jesus here is speaking about is the time when his disciples, when believers would sit around the communion table, when they would sit around the Lord's table and they would literally break bread and drink of the cup. That is what he's speaking about here. He's not speaking about a literal eating of his flesh. He wasn't saying, come and kill me now and eat my body and drink my blood. He wasn't saying that. But he was pointing to that time in Acts 2 when the disciples would break bread from house to house. And of course, they were meeting in houses at that time. John 6.53, Then Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. Of course, that's by faith, isn't it? Ye have no life in you. In other words, the person that cannot sit down and has no desire to even do what he has commanded. Now, the Lord's table, let me say, is a commandment. And Paul says it here. This do, not might do, it's not an option. It's like baptism. Mark 16, 16, believe and be baptized. It's not, it's not an option. It's a commandment. And the Lord's Supper is a commandment. But it is a commandment which, let me say, only true born-again believers will do. And we will see tonight who are the rightful recipients. Of, well, we know who the rightful recipients are of baptism. They're believers. Acts 2, they that gladly received the word were baptized that day. No babies, nobody else. They that received the word that day. Those who repented. And then, who are the rightful recipients of the table? That begs the question. Now, I say it is a commandment. It is a commandment. But when you read Acts chapter 2, we'll get to that in a moment, those people that were baptized that day were added to the church. They weren't little renegades like you find so many today like spiritual butterflies hopping from one church to the next, sucking spiritual nectar out of this place, that place, trying to find preachers that tickle their ears. No. 
they joined the church and they came under the apostles' doctrine and instruction. That's what we read in Acts. But I'm afraid many people don't really study their Bibles, people that contend these things. They don't read the Scriptures. There's no point in even debating with them. Now, who are the recipients? Let us ask the question here. Some here say, well, Paul says, notice in this chapter, he says, so let a man examine himself, and he may eat and drink. Notice what he says in uh, these verses here. But a man, verse 28, let a man examine himself. Now, I'll ask the question. Let a man. Does this mean any man? Now, who's the que- who is this epistle being written to? Turn back to uh, chapter 1. Who is the epistle being written to? We notice Paul, verse 1, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through all, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, the church, my friends, is not the congregation. The church is not people who warm seats, but those as we're told in Acts chapter 2, who were added to the church, those who were baptized, those who came under the loving leadership and discipline of the local church, and who were accountable, who had those who ruled over them. If you just turn with me to Hebrews 13, what does it say there? Hebrews 13 verse 17, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you. Now, if you've got nobody to rule over you, how can you you obey that commandment to begin with? If you're not enjoined to a local church, you have nobody to rule over you. So what are you? You're unruly. You're not under any leadership. You're not under any submission. You can't be disciplined. Remember the brother in 1 Corinthians 5? He said, when you come together, remove this one. He doesn't mean get him out the building. He doesn't mean tell him to go and walk down the street. No, you remove him from fellowship. And you remove him from taking the table. Because he is professing to be a believer, but he's sleeping with his father's wife. And you allow him to sit here, and you are bringing utter contempt and disgrace upon the church of Jesus Christ. It's the same with the drunk. We're told, no, you're not. Drunks, liars, adulterers. Do you not know that these people shall not enter the kingdom of God? Who is the church? The church are born-again believers who have been baptized who come together, who vote for the next pastor, who vote for the elders, who vote for deacons, who exercise, Matthew 18, spiritual discipline. If thy brother sin against thee, go and tell him his fault. If he hear not, take it to another. And if he does not hear you, 
Take it to the church. Now, but who's the church? The church are a body of people that have been baptized and that have come under submission of the oversight. That's the church. Could you imagine if we called for one minute the church, and I am hearing this from people, not our members, but I hear this sometimes from people, even in the congregation, they think the church is just anybody. How can it be? Is that, can anybody vote on who the next pastor is going to be? And how do you draw a delineation? Well, you have to. Well, I'll tell you this. You do have in many churches, sadly, unregenerate people. Look at most of the denominations today. It's sad, but it's true. As long as you attend enough, well, he's one of us. Join us. No fruits of repentance, no sign of it, no faith. The Lord Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. And this is why it's so important, because the church are God's people. But there are holy people, and you are to know them by their life. That's why Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 5, purge out the old leaven. This man, that you may be a new lump. They weren't. They were full of leaven, the leaven of sin, the leaven of this man. And worse, these believers were tolerating the sin. How wrong. The whole purpose of the church is to be a holy bride for Christ. They are his people. A people zealous for good works. A people that are concerned to honor the Lord Jesus. And the whole purpose of discipline is for the restitution of the offender. If somebody has sinned in the church, the church lovingly comes alongside somebody and disciplines them. And if they will not be disciplined, they need to be removed. Lest the rot, the canker... Rot the whole of the church. It is sad to hear that in a number of places, even Reformed Baptist churches, my friends, there are people that are not enjoined to churches and people never been baptized coming to the communion table. And that should never be. Never be. It'll always be to the harm of the church. And we're not being overly strict. This is what the scriptures teach. And the church is to be a holy people. The Lord says, therefore, be holy for I am holy. You know, we are to remember as we come to the table. Peter said this in 1 Peter 1.15. But as he has called you, which is holy, be ye holy in all manner of conversational way of life, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And then he says this, if ye call on the Father, who with respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And then he adds this, 
For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversational way of life received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then Peter is bringing our mind to the Lord's table, isn't he? And this is the height, isn't it, of all that we do. We come and we behold, when we, especially when we come to the Lord's table, this is, my friends, the most sacred and solemn thing that we do. What has God done for us? Just a few things tonight. As Paul says here, I received of the Lord that which he also delivered unto me. He took the cup when he had supped, saying this cup is the New Testament. Think of it. Think of the worth of that. As I said, Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood, divine blood. And it was a divine, it was a body. We speak of the hypostatic union, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. God was manifest in the flesh. Think of the worth of it. He's taken to himself now a body that he will never relinquish. There was a time when Christ, the Son, never had a body. He was the Son of God, and yet he became the Son of Man. That amazing. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, what do we say? We think of the incarnation. That's the first thing we should think about. God was manifest. Then we should think, should we not, just not of the incarnation, but of his atonement, of his precious blood shed for us. What else should we think about? The marriage supper of the Lamb. I have loved you. How long has he loved us? With an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. He drew us into the church. He brought us into the church. And his banner over me was love. It was love that drew us in. But his blood cleanses us from all sin. It cleanses our guilty conscience. That life of his was a sinless life given for our sins. His death means our life. This is what we're thinking about when we come to the table, isn't it? How can an unbeliever, how can a person that is drunk, that doesn't care for Christ, that doesn't want to come under his word, that doesn't want to come under the authority of Christ, when he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men. Ephesians 4.12, men who will watch for your souls, who will care for you. How dare you come to the table? How dare you come to the table, my friend? And you do not want to come under Christ's authority, under the offices that he has appointed. How dare you? You eat and drink unworthily. We think of these things, friend. They are important. We think of the the bread, it's, it's broken. As we said, his body was not broken. 
but it's given to share, isn't it? To share. We all eat and drink. We share. We have the same faith in Christ. And that's wonderful. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. And it tells us there's one body. His church. Look at verse 27 of chapter 12. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. He's talking here, friends, to the church. Not merely attenders, but those who have been changed. They're not perfect. They're far from it. Now, I just want to say a few things. Who are the worthy participants? Those who examine themselves and they see that they are unworthy and they strive to please Christ. Let a man examine himself. He doesn't come because he, he thinks he's good. He understands he's, he's not good. But he is not entertaining sin to continue on in sin. He comes as a repenting man. He comes as a believing man. He comes as a repenting woman, a believing woman. And he comes trusting in the merits of Christ. And in that shed blood, and in that body which the Father gave him, that he should bear that believer's sins in his own body. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That person comes believing that. They do not come believing that they are good. Now, there can be an unworthy absence. Let me put it. There's a sense in which a person must never come if they are not repenting of their sins. But there can be a sense of an unworthy absence if we think, well, I have ask for forgiveness for these latest sins that I've had. I, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge them. And I confess them. And I have turned from them. But Lord, I can't be a Christian. Well, why can't you be a Christian? Well, because I've sinned beyond the pale. No. He died for his people who repent and believe upon him. And they should come. Who have repented. And who are turning. And who are broken in heart. And what do you get when you come? But you see all these things. You see Christ's death for your sin. You see his life given for yours. When you come to the table. You're strengthened. You eat of that bread. You eat of that, that body, as it were, that body in which there was no sin. And one day, blessed be God, John says, you shall see him as he is, for you shall be like him without sin. You see, you're strengthened. And you're reminded one day, you're never going to struggle against sin. Because he said, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. What else are you reminded of? He's coming. There's going to be an end to all this sin. 
There's going to be an end to the struggles and the fears and the doubts. You come weak, but you come repenting always. My friend, there's not a day that should go by that we should not repent. Why do I say that? Because every day we all sin. But we don't sin with a high hand. And we should never sin lightly. The person that sins lightly and high-handedly must have careful examination of their heart. Yes, it's right sometimes to abstain. If you've not repented as you ought, you must turn from sin. I would love to see the church full, packed, with people around the Lord's table. It would give my nothing, me no more greater delight to see that. But friends, we can't violate God's word. And we can't despise Christ. We can't despise his church. Therefore, when we come, we must eat and drink in a worthy manner. Discerning the Lord's body, discerning his church. If we come, we should judge ourselves, lest we not be judged. Look as he closes here, that we be not condemned with the world. My friend, if you don't judge yourself right, you don't examine yourself, you will prove ultimately to not be the Lord's. God's people always examine themselves. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in that man. That's why David could say, search me, Lord, try me. And God would expose it. David, thou art the man. And David was cut in his heart. But David, like Job, knew who he believed in. That God was able with Paul to keep him that which he has committed unto him against that day. Our souls are in Christ's hand. And when we come, we come as poor souls, don't we? And we long that Christ, as he finds us empty, coming to the table, we're filled, filled with him who is that manna from heaven, washed, cleansed in our consciences by his precious blood. He says, if you look at verse 34, if any man hunger, let him eat at home. Don't come and eat here, because all you're thinking about is how nice the bread is going to taste. You eat at home, my friend. You come in a right way. What you need to taste is Christ. You need to taste his sweetness. The sweetness of the forgiveness of your sins. And that knowledge of your soul renewed again. It's so important, isn't it? You see, all this, this, this chapter is so full, my friends. Of things that we need to take in. E even rightful preparation. Not coming hungry. Because you're going to be thinking of the bread, the smell of it, or the fruit of the vine, whatever. You must come satiated and then satisfied with Christ. That's what we should come for, for Christ and for Christ's sake. Amen.